You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Spring, is that you? Warmer temps mean new Albert styles. Meet the Superlight Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. These must-have travel shoes have a lighter-than-air feel and barely their fit that made them the most packable shoes ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Try the Superlight Tree Runner with a cushy foam midsole and breathable eucalyptus fiber upper. Plus, they're comfy right out of the box. So, what can you do in a super light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S.com code SUPER24. From the terrifying power of tornadoes to sizzling summer temperatures, AccuWeather Daily brings you the top trending weather-related story of the day, seven days a week. You can learn a lot in just a few minutes with stories about impending hurricanes, winter storms, or even what not to miss in the night sky. So listen and subscribe to AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. That's AccuWeather Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Monster House presents. Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and look through their incredible collection for your selection. Download and start listening on your phone, computer, or tablet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Like a lot of Monster Talk listeners, I like to read sci-fi. Like all fiction, Sci-fi gives us a way to model imaginary experiences without personal risk. In that way, it can help us prepare for eventualities we don't ever want to experience or to strive for ones we do. As I record this, the world's going through a viral pandemic. It's scary stuff. In fact, scary stuff's everywhere. It's on TV, on the radio, it's in the public square, it's on social media, and of course, it's on podcasts. While a lot of fictional books deal with pandemics, I like to remember this little passage from Frank Herbert's science fiction epic, Dune. I must not fear. Fear is the mind killer. Fear is the little death that brings total obliteration. I will face my fear. I will permit it to pass over me and through me. And when it has gone past, I will turn the inner eye to see its path. Where the fear has gone, there will be nothing. Only I will remain. In a decade of producing Monster Talk, I hope we've been able to help remove the fear from a lot of monsters. Some of them were overblown, others were totally imaginary, and yet others were real but avoidable. And I hope, at the end of today's episode, you'll find yourself better informed about and less frightened of the monster at the heart of this pandemic, or this panic-demic, and of this episode, COVID-19. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. 
in Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland. It's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Today on Monster Talk, we're talking with virus expert Dr. Vincent Racaniello. We're going to talk about what viruses are, how they reproduce, and what to do about this current contagion. I want to thank Karen and friend of the show, Maddie Love, for helping put this together on such short notice, and to Dr. Racaniello for making time for us. He produces an incredible amount of awesome science content on his network, microbe.tv. So check the links in the show notes. We'll get back to more traditional monsters in our next episode, which is all about screaming skulls. But as a public service, and because frankly, I always feel better about things when I actually know the science and data behind them, this felt like a topic that we needed to tackle. If you find it helpful, please take the time to spread the facts with people you know. In times of chaos, people like Monster Talk listeners, that is to say, people armed with critical thinking skills and scientific skepticism, are a vital part of helping to keep the public calm and of avoiding worse disaster. Monster Talk. So, I've heard all of the, the swearing and anger. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hello. Hey. Hello. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. How are you? It's good morning to me. Oh, well, good morning to you. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry it's morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, hi, Vincent. I'm Karen. And Hello, this Karen. Is Blake. Hi, Blake. Hello. Nice, nice to meet you. Likewise. So we were just and, discussing uh, that you're, you're, you're a, uh, a senior podcaster because you've been doing it for two years longer than us. <laughs> yeah. 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 <laughs> Tw- let's see, 12, t- how many years have I been doing it? 10 years, I guess. Yeah. Oh, okay. Okay. We've been doing it ten years as well. Okay, so we're we're the same. Okay, I thought I thought it was twelve, which would be the is that a dodecade? I guess instead of a decade, I don't know. Started um, in two thousand and eight. That's that's well, that's a little longer than oh, us. Yeah, we started yeah, two thousand nine. Yeah. A year so. longer. Yeah, right at the start of podcasting. I mean, yeah. that was the beginning. We were early adopters, right? Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But now the infection has spread. So, <laughs> <laughs> but but we're practicing social distancing because yes. and. We're spread across the country. My wife's yeah. been practicing that for quite a while. Like so. the coronavirus. <laughs> some people, some people have always practiced social distancing. It's true. It's true. Yes. Um, last yes. night, I went down to the CNN studios, and I was actually surprised that they had me go there. You know, it would be mm-hmm. much easier or safer to do it by Skype. But I went down there. You know, and kind of not really right, but that's the way it was. Yeah. Yeah. I think lots of our listeners are nerds and they spend a lot of time social distancing. That's right. That's right. And proudly. Yes. I'm sorry. I'm, I'm, uh, any coughs you hear, by the way, as far to the best of my knowledge, are me suffering through spring, which I have every year. Not uh, COVID, yeah. 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 Oh. So I, I normally walk around with a mask in the springtime. So I think all my neighbors now think I have a disease. So. I, I do. It's spring any fever. Cough, any sneeze. Yeah. Yeah, it's ridiculous. All right. <laughs> anyway, let's get started for real. Today, uh, we are welcoming Vincent Racaniello. Um, he is a, what is a Higgins professor? Oh, Higgins is a family that gave some money to the university. Oh, it's an endowment. Uh, okay. It's an endowment, yeah. 
and you're in the Department of Microbiology and Immunology at Columbia University, and you are a blogger and the host of This Week in Virology, but that's not all you do. What, what else, what other podcasting properties are you involved with? I have This Week in Virology, This Week in Parasitism, This Week in Microbiology, uh, This Week in Evolution, This Week in Neuroscience, and Immune. Wow. Man, these sound like right up our listeners' alley. So we'll put a link to all Absolutely. those in the show notes. And I'm getting itchy too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we get into the specifics, because we're we're going to be talking about uh, this newest coronavirus. But before we get into that, could we talk a little bit about what is a virus and how it's different from a bacterial infection? Because I'm already I'm running into people who want antibiotics and all kinds of other things that have no bearing on this. Yeah. Yeah, you bet. So. A virus is very simple. It's a piece of nucleic acid, DNA or RNA, right? The stuff that makes up our genes. A piece of nucleic acid uh, wrapped in a protein and sometimes a bit of a membrane. And that's, that's all it is. And so on its own, a, a virus can't do anything. It can't reproduce. Whereas bacteria, you know, they have a complete genome that encodes a lot of protein. So they can grow on their own. They can divide. If you take a bacterium, you put it in broth, it can divide over and over and over again. But a, a virus, if you put it in broth, nothing would happen. It has to get inside of a cell. So that's the major difference. You know, viruses are relatively small, although not all of them are. They can't do anything on their own. They have to get inside a cell in order to make more viruses. And that's why antibiotics don't work against viruses because they're targeted against bacteria, and, and all the things that they do. And for those people who are living under a rock, what is the <laughs> coronavirus or COVID-19? You can tell us about that. <clears throat> so there are many, many different kinds of viruses out there. In fact, there are more viruses on the earth than almost any other biological entity. I would say the most of any biological entity. Wait, more than Korean boy bands? Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> Even more. <laughs> yeah, I mean, if you start talking about grains of sand and, you know, molecules of water, that's more. But <sighs> virus particles, listen to this. This is a really cool fact that you can use at your next party if we ever have parties again. Um, <laughs> if you took all the viruses on the planet, and the number has been estimated at 10 to the 31, that's 10 to the exponent 31. If you put them all end to end, they would extend 200 light years into space. Wow. That's way beyond the end of our solar system, of course. And keep, there's so many of them. That's that, that's that number. So what is a coronavirus? It's, it's a family of viruses that have an RNA as their genetic material. They're wrapped in a membrane, and they have uh, little spikes in the membrane. So when the, when the people first looked at them, under electron microscopes, kind of looked like a crown, so they called it coronavirus because corona is means means crown. And these it's are nothing to do with the beer. <laughs> no, it doesn't have anything to do with the beer, although it's a nice tie-in, I guess. Yeah. Um, the best picture I've seen so far in this outbreak: a, a case, you know, a cold case of beer in the store. You got coronas, and then all the other beers have face masks on. Yeah. Them. <laughs> Isn't that great? I just love that. I just love it. And I, I'm thinking I, someone should take those face masks because they're in short supply now, right? Indeed, yeah. Well, and sell them on Amazon. 
so coronas are one kind of virus that have been around. We've known about them for a long time. Um, before 2003, there were five or six different human coronaviruses that just called very, caused very mild colds in humans. Uh, and we didn't really pay much attention to them because they didn't cause serious illness. But they're also, you name the animal, there's a coronavirus that infects it. You know, dogs, cats, pigs, uh, birds, snakes, everything has a coronavirus. After 2003, though, these uh, epidemic coronaviruses emerged. Now there are three of them. There was the original SARS coronavirus. Then there's MERS coronavirus in the Middle East. And uh, now we have SARS coronavirus 2. And, of course, these three brand-new epidemic coronaviruses are causing way more serious disease uh, than the original ones that, that we used to know. Obviously, we're trying to get good information out here within our podcast, and, and you're doing the same within yours. But if I wanted up-to-the-minute information, I, it seems like I'm getting a lot of mixed messages from traditional media. Is there a good place to go for like the latest science-based information about the virus? Well, I always tell people to go to the WHO and CDC websites because they have really good information. They are not flawless. Nobody's flawless on Earth, right? So uh, there are going to be mistakes there. But I think uh, over any other site, if you want information about what's going on and, and what to do, uh, I think those are really good. And do we know now, I mean, I, I know that there have been varying numbers, and I still heard some this morning on NPR, like something from half a percent to three percent fatality ratios. Um, and and I'm, I'm, I'm assuming that those fatality ratios are projections based on what kind of populations are being infected. I don't, I don't actually know how those are calculated. That so let's talk about that. That's a good that's really important because those are numbers being thrown around and they scare people. They do. But I want to make the case that you should not be scared. Okay. So right now there are 150,000 confirmed cases globally. Okay. One way to, to compute a case fatality ratio is simply to divide the total number of deaths by the total cases. So I'm going to open my calculator here and we have 5,614 deaths divided by 150,000, and that is 3.7%. However, South Korea, with 8,000 cases, they only have 72 deaths, which is less than 1%. And outside of uh, Hubei province in China, it's also very low. So, and in New York City, let's see, we have in New York City so far, which is where uh, I am, we have um, 524 cases and one death. So, the moral is the case fatality ratio really depends on where you're reporting it. And why should that be? I think it's all about the kind of health care you get. Uh, 83% of these infections are, are mild, 20, roughly 20%, 17% are more serious. A fraction of those require hospitalization, and an even smaller fraction require intensive care unit because you need to be on a respirator and get oxygen and so forth. If you run out of ICU beds, that's a big problem. 
That's what happened in Wuhan in the beginning of the outbreak. They had too many cases. They couldn't hospitalize anyone. That's why they had a high case uh, fatality ratio. South Korea, on the other hand, recognized in January what was happening. They started to build hospital capacity. They started to roll out diagnostic tests. And they kept the number of cases lower. And they didn't overburden their hospitals. Italy, on the other hand, and Iran... They've totally overburdened their hospital system, so they're having deaths. So this case fatality ratio is not an intrinsic property of the virus. It is actually a reflection of your ability to take care of the patient. And so I think here in the U.S. Um, and, and uh, other countries, obviously, if we can keep the numbers low, we'll, we'll not overburden our hospitals. We'll be able to care for most of the patients, and they shouldn't die. And uh, I wanted to ask you, what do you think about the response or the initial lack of response to the disease in the United States? It's been horrible. It has been horrible. We haven't done anything until the past week. Right. right. Essentially the last few days. This, mm -hmm. is, this is completely unacceptable. We should have started in January when we saw this virus spreading extensively in China. We mm -hmm. should have started at least to build out diagnostic capability. Only yesterday did the president announce that we're going to start rolling out a lot of diagnostic tests. This is too late in a, in a mm -hmm. way. We should have done this in January. We should have started building out bed capacity. We have 95,000 ICU beds in the U.S. If we have a million cases, and let's say 1% of those are going to need intensive care unit, that's 10,000, right? So you could see we could closely exceed the 95,000. If we'd been diagnosing before, we would get a better idea of what's out there. So currently, we have in the U.S. 2,500 cases. I think they're probably from 25,000 to maybe 250,000 actual infections that we're not detecting because we're, we're not looking for them. Right. And, right. and as I said, if, if this virus causes mild infections, most people, you know, it's flu season. Most people get sniffles, cough, fever. Ah, I have a flu. I'm going to work. No problem. And they never get diagnosed. And they may have you know, SARS-CoV-2. So uh, I, I think it's a shame that we have taken so long to get going. Again, grudgingly, right? yeah. our leaders say, not just the president, but the head of CDC, no, it's not going to be a problem. And they're just ignoring it. I'm not sure why. You can speculate. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I think countries like outside of Wuhan and China did really well. South Korea did really well. So it's a shame that we're not what do you think about, I've got a friend who is uh, being quarantined right now. Um, she gives talks on cruise ships and she's quarantined in Brazil. What do you think about the the way that uh, this has been handled so far in situations like quarantining cruise ships and, and school closures? So the way the cruise ships have been handled is a total disaster. First cruise ship off of Japan, they decide to keep everybody on board. Big mistake because the air circulates throughout the boat and they just infected everyone. It's like having several thousand people in a room and putting one infected person in. You're, you're bound to get. They should have taken them off and sent them home. They would have been better off. And then the, the latest cruise ship of California, you know, they didn't want to bring them in because that would add to the numbers in the U.S., which is totally absurd. <laughs> so, and in fact, on my podcast, we got uh, email from a person who works for a cruise ship company. And he basically said, you know, you would think 
we learned, but apparently we didn't learn our lesson from that first cruise ship example. That's amazing. So you mentioned uh, the virus being spread through the air system. How is this? Well, I guess just can we just talk about how this particular strain of virus spreads? Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah. So there are two main ways. Uh, the first is by what we call respiratory droplets. And that's when you talk and cough and sneeze. You know, you're expelling droplets, which are composed of water and mucus. And they have virus in them if you're infected, right? Mm-hmm. And the the droplets that contain coronaviruses are pretty big and they don't uh, travel very far in the air. So if I'm in a room with no airflow, I would say six meters, uh, six feet is the most that they're going to go. So that's why people say, you know, stay six feet away from another person. And because they fall to the floor very quickly. That's a main way of spread. The other the other main uh, important way is by contaminated hands or surfaces. So we as humans, we're always touching our noses and eyes and we have mucus on our fingers. So if we're infected, that has virus in it. And then we touch a doorknob and someone else could touch that then and acquire the virus on their fingers and then touch their nose, et cetera. So that's contact transmission. And that seems to also be playing a big role uh, in this outbreak. So that's why we say wash your hands frequently, because that way you're less likely to contaminate yourself. Do, do we know how long it remains a, a, a viable virus once it's on a surface? Yes, a paper is coming out this week uh, where they looked at that with this SARS-CoV-2 virus. They looked at how long it lasts in aerosols, and they did copper, cardboard, stainless steel, and plastic. And the bottom line is it doesn't last forever. It lasts for hours, okay? I think that's the best way to put it instead of giving you the numbers. Um, And it's comparable in that way to SARS-1. And so basically that means that if you touch a surface and it's going to have virus on it for at least a couple of hours, but not days and days and days, right? It's not going to last forever. That's what I've been hearing just yeah, members of the public. Oh, it lasts for three days or five days. No, that's not right. That's not true. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, the, the experiment hadn't been done until very recently, so there's no way that anyone would know. But mm-hmm. so that's good. And that's why, you know, if you clean your surfaces frequently, I was at a, a lunch place. So in our in our university on the ground floor, they have a little kiosk. And I went because no one was there yesterday. So and they were scrubbing down the counters because, you know, mm-hmm. when people are paying, they put their hands on the counter and it's a good source of contamination. So that's why people are doing that as well as washing hands. Well, now you've got me fascinated. The the we talked about how um, animals pick up or, 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 or we, I guess we talked about how the bacteria and stuff you can put into a, pe- a Petri dish and, and grow it. How do you actually go about checking the, the lifespan of these surface viruses? Do you like is it with lab animals or is there some? other method that they have for seeing whether or not it's still infectious? So what you can do uh, is you can grow cells in basically a Petri dish, a plastic dish full of of nutrient medium. And you can grow any cells from almost any animal that you can think of. We have a lot of human cells in culture. Uh, And then you can use that. You put your virus on that and it will reproduce in those cells so that you could then take you know, if you, you put some virus on stainless steel and at different times 
you could then put that into the cell culture and see if there's virus left. And you could do it in a quantitative manner so you know how much virus is there. So it's a lot easier than using animals, obviously. So these cell cultures uh, make a lot of virus assay and experimentation uh, very convenient. And Vincent, what can you tell us about the the origins of the virus? Because there are some pretty wacky myths and conspiracy theories out there. <laughs> For example, that it escaped from a lab. <laughs> so the original SARS-1, okay, which uh, arose in 2003, that uh, was transmitted to humans from live meat markets in the south of China. And the virus uh, originated in a bat and went through civets and raccoon dogs as an intermediary and those were being sold at the meat market they were contaminated out in, out in the uh, fields by the bats and they carried the virus this one seems to have also come from a bat because its uh, genetic sequence its rna sequence is very close to the sequence from a bat that was sampled in 2013 about a thousand miles outside of uh, Wuhan. And okay. so we think that the virus originated in a bat, but it might've come through an intermediary animal. And you may have heard a while ago that pangolins were being suspected, but- Snakes they, and- Snakes, but none of those are the actual intermediate host. So this virus was not made in the lab. If you, if you look at the genome sequence in, in a variety of ways, it's quite clear that it wasn't made in a lab uh, because it has it has signatures that humans wouldn't know to put in there. And so nevertheless, people persist in thinking it was released from a lab. You know, it could have been could have been unintentional, they say. But from our viewing, you know, a bunch of us have looked at the sequence and it's quite clear it's not. So I would just forget that this is made by nature. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's, it's a it's goes you've got another show about evolution it, it's a fundamental uh, lack of understanding about evolution that makes people completely confused they look for there has to be an intelligent source for this there has to be an intelligent source and no no there doesn't <laughs> no and, and to that i say you know the best genetic engineer is nature yeah nature Nature yeah. can do anything. Given enough time, nature can do anything. It, it, it's, it, it'll run a lot of iterative tests at the same time in a way that humans just don't have the capacity. <laughs> That's a great way to put it. I really like that. You're absolutely right. And most of those tests fail, right? Right. <laughs> and I'm sure many viruses have uh, emerged over the years and they just have, they don't work. They don't go anywhere. But now and then, see, because viruses make so many of themselves, they can copy themselves so efficiently that in the billions and billions and billions of viruses, there's going to be one that works for whatever the situation is, and mm -hmm. it takes off. You know, I, I probably should have led with this. I mean, the, our show's called Monster Talk, and a lot of what we do is try to get to the bottom of mysteries around monsters and talk about their cultural significance. But really, especially for Karen and me, I think from early on, we're, we're going through a lot of monsters that scared us when we were kids, and a lot of our show is about not being afraid or, you know, what's the appropriate response. And I, I think the, the sort of uh, fact-based, science-based, rational, as much as possible, uh, information is clearly the minority here. I mean, uh, I, the, just the response of the public buying all this toilet paper. I, I don't know what in the world that's got to do with anything. I, I, but I, I, one of the rumors that we heard about that we'd like to help dispel is 
the idea that there's two strains of this coronavirus, that there's a, uh, a, a like a less lethal and more lethal strain. Have you, I, I think you talked a little bit about that in your most recent episode on this topic. Right. So that's another fallacy that's emerged. Um, there, there are not two strains. They all have the same lethality as far as we can tell. But let me tell you why this happened. Um, I think early on in the, in the Washington outbreak in the U.S., uh, they were isolating viruses from people and, and looking at the genome sequence and saying, what does this look like? And they found a slight difference from the Wuhan virus, right? And what happens with viruses, especially viruses with RNA as their genetic material, as they reproduce in a host, they make lots of mistakes. And some of these mistakes are lethal, so we never see those viruses. Some of them are silent, make no difference to the virus, so the virus just carries them. And when a virus comes into a new population, you typically see uh, what we call a founder effect, and that is the first virus to get in someone that predominates with whatever changes it has because it was there first and the changes remain. And so they noticed first in, in Wuhan and then in Washington that there were slightly different versions circulating. There's zero evidence that they have any difference in their ability to cause disease. And so I think that's completely a non-starter. And, you know, people like to have these ideas that viruses are going to get worse and worse and worse and get more lethal. There is zero evidence that that has ever happened for any human virus. In fact, we think the opposite happens. Over time, once a virus crosses over from a non-human animal to a human, given many, many years, it may take thousands of years, eventually the virus comes to, say, an agreement with the host and doesn't, doesn't kill it, doesn't make it so sick that it can't transmit, and it becomes pretty mild. So these coronaviruses that cause common cold, we think probably, you know, thousands of years ago when they first went into people, they were probably lethal. And then over the time, they've evolved to become less lethal. Because when you think about it, if you debilitate your host so that it can't transmit, that's not good for the virus. The, you know, the driving, yeah. the driving evolutionary selection for viruses is to find a new host. Mm -hmm. And if you, you terminate that, it's a real problem. And, and, you know, Ebola virus is a good example. It's really lethal. It wouldn't really transmit much, except when people die, they prepare their, their, the bodies, the family prepares the bodies, for example, for right. burial, and they contaminate themselves. So they're having very close contact there. Uh, otherwise, that, that's why that kind of virus would never spread globally, because in other countries, if we don't do that, then we know how to isolate the virus. So there are not two strains circulating. There, it's all one that has all similar you know, lethality, as we talked about earlier. Monster Talk. This episode of Monster Talks brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk, browse through their unmatched collection of titles, select one, and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. When I decided to run ads for Monster Talk, going with Audible was the easiest choice because I've used it for so long. I've been an Audible member since 2003, and I listen to it all the time. I use Audible to prepare for many episodes of this show. Many of the books that we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. 
My audible recommendation this week is They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers by Gray Barker. This is a foundational text of UFO lore and introduces the reader to the kind of fandom and amateur academic work of ufology, as well as to the mystery and lore around agencies and mysterious figures who try to suppress UFO news, at least according to Barker. This story will give you a creepy introduction to the world of the men in black before those characters spin off to their own series, or at least become a standard part of UFO lore. Barker himself is a strange and enigmatic figure whose work is shaped by his whimsical prankster nature, his awareness that much of the stuff he writes about he didn't believe or couldn't believe, but yet his finances depended upon selling it, and by the secrets about his life that society was not ready to embrace. If you're interested in UFOs, you owe it to yourself to read They Knew Too Much About Flying Saucers, and the Audible edition is a great way to consume it. With Audible, I was able to listen while I did chores, mowed the grass, and shopped for groceries. I can move seamlessly from my phone to my tablet to my computer, and Audible keeps up with my progress. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. But I'm happy to make Peter Law's book, The Frighteners, my suggestion for this month. To download your free audiobook while also supporting our show, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Monster Talk. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. Spring? Is that you? Warmer temps mean new Allbirds styles. Meet the Super Light Collection, the lightest ever shoes from Allbirds, now in fresh colors. They've designed must-have travel styles for when you need to jet. The lighter-than-air feel and barely-there fit makes these shoes some of the most packable styles ever. That means more comfort and less baggage. Take the Super Light Tree Runner on your next adventure. Its cushy, lightweight foam midsole supports every step, and the extra outsole traction gives you the grip to just go for it. The eucalyptus fiber upper adds next-level breathability to keep you going all day. Plus, the Super Light Tree Runner is comfortable and ready to go right out of the box. So, what can you do in a Super Light shoe? What can't you do is the better question. And because they're super packable, the real question is, where are you taking them? Experience how Allbirds redefines comfort. Visit Allbirds.com and use code SUPER24 for a free pair of socks with a purchase of $48 or more. That's A-L-L-B-I-R-D-S dot com, code SUPER24. Yeah, I was trying to calm my kids down, and I kept talking about that this idea of, like, uh, a communicability and lethality are two different things. And That's right. Absolutely. And, Absolutely. and this has a super high communicability, but the lethality, I mean, I, I, I when I say it's low, I feel bad every time I say that because whether it's 3% or 1%, for the people who die, this is pretty serious. They're human beings. Yeah. So I, I just, but, but still, are there other, are there other, uh, if I were graphing this out, are there other dimensions to this that I should be concerned about besides communicability and lethality? No, those are the two main ones, right? 
how well how well the virus transmits. And this is pretty good at transmitting. It's it's better than seasonal influenza, for example, mm-hmm. right? And it's and then the other is the lethality. And these are this is not the most lethal virus we know of. The SARS one was more lethal. That was about a ten percent case fatality ratio. So very different. Uh, and this transmits pretty well. It seems to transmit a little better than seasonal influenza. So that, that's why we're concerned, because those properties, and especially the transmissibility, coupled with the fact that no human on Earth way back in December had any immunity to the virus, meant it was just going to spread everywhere unless we intervened. And that's why, you know, early on, countries should have been doing something. The ones that didn't are now in real trouble. And so we did want to ask you more about immunity, but I just had one more follow-up question uh, as well about this supposed second coronavirus. I've also heard of people being reinfected by the coronavirus. Is that true? So these reports are what I would call so far anecdotal, right? It means that I saw a, a clip when I was in the CNN studio yesterday. I saw them play a clip of a patient from one of these cruise ships saying, oh, I got infected again. And you know what? (laughs) I don't, I I can't hear a patient say that because we don't have any diagnostic results. So let's assume there are some reinfections. So we were talking with this about our expert yesterday on on, uh, This Week in Virology. And he said he has heard of this also. And if we extrapolate from MERS coronavirus, which is still causing outbreaks mainly in the Arabian Peninsula. When when that virus is infecting people, you get a very good immune response. You get high uh, immunity in the blood shortly after infection. Then over the next year, it declines. And that suggests that you can get reinfected, but the reinfection is milder. So that first disease may be more severe, but then Second is going to be milder and so forth. So that's my, that's what might might be happening in these patients. They might be reinfected, but with a milder disease. However, mm-hmm. it could also be that the diagnostic test was wrong. So if you're to, for you to be released from a hospital, if you've been uh, diagnosed with SARS-CoV-2, you have to have two consecutive PCR tests be negative, and you can have false negatives. Right. So they could also have released people who are not really over their infection yet. So, yeah, that's what I was going to ask about. Yeah, (laughs) I think it's over it. (laughs) I think it's really too early. We have to wait for a real close study of these patients with proper labs and all that. And we'll see. But if it happens to be true, uh, it's not something new because we see that with MERS. And the point is that the second infections are are not anywhere near as lethal. Okay. I've noticed that among my elderly relatives, they, they, it's, there's already a natural tendency to, for people to trust anecdotes more than data, which is just apparently yeah. part of being human. But I, I, I've noticed <laughs> that my older relatives really prefer anecdotes to information from the media. And I, I think I'm going to start saying they've entered their anecdotage because I think that kind of <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> captures cool. the moment. Yeah, that's very good. <laughs> I, like, I like that, yeah. Should have warned you about Blake. <laughs> I have a word problem. <laughs> well, you're like I have on my TWIV podcast, Alan Dove, who's just like you. Uh, <laughs> oh, so could we talk a little bit about uh, immunity? We've heard about uh, asymptomatic transmission to other people who could uh, catch this virus but not and spread it, but not actually 
show symptoms themselves. So there there's a bit of um, disagreement. So if you look at what China and WHO are saying, they they say, okay, there are some asymptomatic infected people, which means that you you are infected, you're shedding virus, but you don't show any symptoms. They say it's not contributing to transmission, and they feel that all of those people eventually go on to having disease of some sort, some kind of clinical symptoms, so they're, they're eventually going to get sick. Um, but Ralph Barrick, who was our expert yesterday on TWIV, he said there's definitely asymptomatic shedding, and that could be a major contributor. I think more important are the mild infections. I think there are a lot of those, you know, 80% are mild to the extent that you would not know that you had SARS-CoV-2. You might think you have a cold or, or a mild flu and you're walking around, you're not diagnosed and you're shedding. I think those are really contributing to the transmission now. Okay. I'm, I've been doing a lot of research in my day job around uh, the medical industry. So I was already familiar with a lot of the policies and procedures and requirements around uh, testing something for human use. And I know there's a lot of political pressure to get a vaccine out fast, but can you talk a little bit about why it's always a lengthy process to create a vaccine and why you can't just throw money and people at it and instantly get a result? So I should, two things. First, I want to tell you how vaccines are developed. And then yeah, please. the oh, second yeah. part is you're going to give a vaccine to healthy people, right, to prevent infection. It can't have any side effects. Mm -hmm. If it does, people won't take it, right? Right. And so we have to test them extensively. And that means it takes minimum two years. So what do you have to do? If you want to make a vaccine, first, you have to show in the lab that it, that it works. So you have to design it and build it. There are so many different ways you can make a vaccine nowadays. You, you, you pick your way, you build it, and then you have to have some animal that you give it to and show that it can protect the animal from infection. Now, that's, that's done for all the vaccines we have licensed. Um, and then when you amass enough of that kind of information, that's called preclinical data, then you go to the FDA here in the U.S., and you apply to do a human trial. And there are three phases of human trials. There's what we call phase one, where you take 20 or 30 volunteers and you inject them with your vaccine and you just make sure there are no side effects. You know, some of them are gonna have stuff happen to them in the course of their lives over the next month. And you have to do, use statistics to make sure it wasn't caused by the vaccine. So that's a phase one. They're just starting that now for this virus, and I'll, I'll comment on that in a bit. And that takes a couple of months. You have to get the volunteers. You have to inoculate them. You have to then have a period of time where you're going to observe them, maybe a month or two. And then you collect the data and process it. So that takes six months, let's say, optimistically speaking. I've seen it take a year. Then you have to do a phase two where... You give, in some cases, different doses of your vaccine, and then you let people go on with their lives. You have a vaccinated group and a control group that doesn't get vaccinated. And then in a couple of months, you see which ones got SARS-CoV-2 infection and which ones did not. 
And you compare the two and you can say, oh, the vaccine prevented 80% of infections in the vaccinated group, or it didn't have any effect, in which case that's the end of your vaccine. Or you can try and rejigger it or whatever. And then after that, and that takes at least a year. And after that, you have to do a phase three where you have an even bigger population that you inoculate and you see the disease rate. And all of this, phase two and three, of course, depends on having infections ongoing. And so for Zika virus, for example, that emerged in 2015, we made a bunch of vaccines. And by the time they were ready for testing, the virus was gone. So a lot of those are sitting in the freezer waiting for another outbreak before they can be tested. So that's where we are with this virus. Now, the NIH has announced that they're putting into a phase one an experimental vaccine. It's based on just injecting RNA into people. But there is no animal model that you can use to show protection. It doesn't exist yet. Nobody has it. Mice are not infectable with SARS-CoV-2. So they took that vaccine, they put it into mice and simply showed that it made an immune response. But we don't know if that's protective yet because of the urgency, they're pushing it into a phase one. Mm -hmm. So under certain circumstances, you can accelerate the process. I think it's risky because, you know, after a year, they could find that this doesn't protect and that's a waste of time. But fortunately, many other candidates are being moved along at the same time. And so one of those may work, but we're talking minimum, minimum 18 months. Even if we did it in 18 months, that would be a miracle. No vaccine has ever been developed that quickly. Right. So I, I don't think any vaccine is going to have an impact on the current outbreak. I, right. Exactly. I, I, what we need to do, I think, is survive this and hopefully not get infected. And then hopefully also in 18 to 24 months, something will come along that is useful for helping us. But I, I, I've been every time I hear a politician say anything less than 18 months, I, I just cringe because it's not right. No, you should, yeah. you, should, you should cringe. It's totally fantasy to think you could make it in less than 18 months. A lot of people have this uh, uh, concept of, of these monolithic big pharma companies. But yet most of this actual vaccine development is happening in these third-party partners, right? I mean, that, that's been my understanding. Is that, is that accurate? I think it's a mix. I think there's some big, big companies involved, and there's some smaller ones as well. The first uh, vaccine that's going into phase one is, a, is made by a relatively small company. But uh, yeah, so the small ones can be nimble. They can move quickly. But you know, the bigger companies also have a lot of resources to throw at this. So from what I can see, it's a mix of big and small. Okay. Yeah, I was just going to say, I keep seeing this article come up on Facebook about China releasing a vaccine that's going to be ready by April. <laughs> that's the main one I keep seeing. <laughs> well, well, you know, China has its own regulations. Uh, our FDA is very stringent. They want to be safe. And sure. there, there are a number of vaccines that are licensed in China, which the FDA will not approve, mainly because they want to do their own testing in the U.S., and they don't really accept the, the testing done elsewhere. Right. We so, also don't have really we don't have mandatory vaccinations, which a totalitarian government can can implement. That's right. Yes. <laughs> so I, the thing is, someone asked me once a few weeks ago, if we had a vaccine tomorrow, would people take it? And my answer is they'll take it tomorrow, but next year they won't or half of them won't because, you know, half people don't take the flu vaccine. 
Yeah. Yet that, that that's caused 15 million infections so far this season and 8,000 deaths. So I, I don't understand. <laughs> I don't understand. But I think once this virus is another human virus and it comes back every year, uh, and if there is a vaccine, I don't think everyone will take it. This memory is going to fade and they will just say, I don't need it. Uh, but uh, but speaking about Facebook and Twitter and social media, I just can't go on to social media without seeing all of my friends, everyone posting about uh, information about the coronavirus and also in particular prevention. So uh, could you tell us a little bit about what we can actually do to, to prevent infection or if we do get sick, what is it that we need to do? Yeah, social media and the internet has really changed things, right? So in a way, it's great because you can get so much information. But on the other hand, everyone becomes an expert, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, What's a misinformation? Well, what can you do? So there's not a lot, but what what's available is pretty effective. So hand washing frequently is going to prevent the transmission from surfaces. And mm -hmm. so that's good. Um so right now, because we want to prevent a massive outbreak, we're doing this social distancing, right? You should, right now in the U.S., you really shouldn't have meetings of more than uh, one or 200 people, even less. I mean, in our, our university, 25 is the maximum, but I think that's going to go away quickly. I think 25 is too much. Um, and because if you have 300 cases in your city, you may have... 3,000 or 30,000 or 300,000. And so the chance that anyone in a room of more than 10 or 20 people has is infected is gets pretty high as the outbreak goes along. So distancing yourself is important. But, you know, if you didn't distance and you had to go to work and go through society as usual up until a few days ago here, you know, stay away from obviously sick people. Try not to be in places where there are a lot of people. You know, don't go to concerts, don't go to restaurants and so forth. And now that's obviously the case. But staying away from people is the best way not to get infection. Now, I should tell you that I saw a study last week. You know, in China, they had draconian measures where they made people stay home. You couldn't go out more than once or twice a week to get supplies. And then they did a temperature check and all that. And they've monitored other infectious diseases that would normally occur this year, like flu and common colds and so forth. And all of those have gone down. So this whole isolation thing really works. Yeah. <laughs> of course, it's very inconvenient to do all the time. We're doing mm -hmm. it now in the case of an outbreak. But even yeah. if we weren't distancing, hand washing, keeping your distance, uh, those, those kind of things are important. Now, one thing you might want to ask is, should you wear a face mask, right? Mm-hmm. It's almost a moot question because you can't buy them anyway. <laughs> They're <laughs> all gone. So the CDC does not recommend the use of face masks. Now, if you go to a doctor's office, they will put one on you to protect them, right? right? It turns out if you go in the literature, you can find good evidence that face masks, when properly worn, can decrease the transmission of respiratory infections, all right? I think... In the best world, if we had enough face masks, wearing them would help. In China, many people wear face masks, and I think that makes an impact, but we don't have them. And when we do, people don't wear them properly. You know, if you don't wear them in the right way, it's not going to give you protection. But, you know, for those people who do have face masks, wear them. And uh, the rest of us, we just have to stay home. Yeah. 
I think in terms of uh, as for social distancing, I'm going to make a prediction and say that that's going to be the, the word or phrase of 2020. I think you're right. The, uh, the online dictionaries. Yeah, my, my wife right. used it on me last night. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But that's that's nothing new. <laughs> Not really, no. <laughs> Since we've talked about social media and we're talking about viruses, I I am absolutely fascinated at the way like memetics and, and these sort of online memes are also viral. And unfortunately, it seems like people aren't really equipped with really good skills at, at, at critically examining information. They just love to share it. Like we are such terrible vectors for both disease and bad ideas. Uh, <laughs> and, but in the history of, uh, of, of viruses, do you, is, is there anything like this? I mean, people keep wanting to compare it to Spanish flu and uh, uh, some of the other big outbreaks. Is, is this comparable to those? And, and are, are there other models? I mean, obviously, the, the Black Plague was quite a bit different, but that was bacterial, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, there certainly have been – well, there's, there's been nothing like this because the human population has never been as big and it's never been as mobile as yeah. it is today, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So those two things – make it a huge outbreak that spreads very quickly. And we have had big influenza pandemics before, and, you know, they get a lot of press. But, you know, the last one was 2009, and that's a long time ago in terms of human history. Um, It's 1968, 1957, 1918. Those are all rather large flu pandemics with millions of deaths globally, right? but I don't think any of those approaches the hyst- hyst- hysterical attitude that people have today with this one, um, mainly because it's something new, I think, and there's nothing we can do to stop it. But that's the same for flu. You know, you can't stop influenza. Right, right. No, it's just, it's just part of the, the new world, right? Yeah, it is. But, you know, in, in old human populations— you know, before we, we had agriculture and started to live in big cities, we were hunter-gatherers, right? We lived in little communities of one or 200 people. And, you know, they would go out into the fields and collect nuts and berries and maybe kill an animal now and then. But they had contact with wildlife. I'm sure they got infections. And maybe, you know, entire communities were wiped out. Oh, nobody else knew. There was no communication, right? Right. And I, and I imagine if you look at the... Uh, what happened when the Spanish came to North and South America? Because uh, that's basically just a genocide based on disease. I mean, oh, that's that's a great example. So yes, so smallpox and measles existed uh, in Europe and Asia and Africa because those viruses came from animals. When we started to raise animals in large numbers for food, we got their viruses. But it stayed on the other side of the Atlantic, right? And then, as you say, the European explorers went to the New World. They brought smallpox. They brought measles. It wiped out native populations. Millions and millions of people died because they'd never seen the virus before. So it's actually a similar situation. You introduce virus into a naive population. It has huge spread. And that's exactly what's happened with SARS-CoV-2. And fortunately for us, it looks like this one doesn't have those lethalities. But goodness gracious, people really forget what a devastating impact that had on um, those cultures, mostly because they don't have a lot of written history. You know, I mean, I think we just don't have a big, I mean, it exists, but we don't have a big uh, public awareness of of the devastation there. So in that sense, I still consider us lucky in this one. But 
It'd be nice if we had an infrastructure in place to handle pandemics. <laughs> what, well, we what, how do you think this is going to impact uh, the government's response going forward? So uh, I'm glad you bring it up because we should have been ready for this. Mm-hmm. We had SARS in 2003. We knew what it could do. We knew how it would spread. We knew where it came from. We knew what virus it was. Why weren't we ready? Why didn't we have antivirals that would hit all of these coronaviruses? Why didn't we have some vaccines that could be broadly protective? All of that is doable, but nobody worked on it. And why? Well, SARS came and went so quickly, a lot of people just forgot about it. But the companies, and this is the problem, the companies said, there's no market, we're not going to make a vaccine, we're not going to make an antiviral. And in a way, this shows us that our the the system we have in place to protect our health depends on for-profit companies and they need a big enough market. And so between SARS 1 and 2, there wasn't a market, so we have nothing. And going forward, the same thing is going to happen, I guarantee you. These companies will not invest in a broadly neutralizing vaccine or antiviral unless we have we take some different approaches. And I'm seeing this start to happen. There's a nonprofit called CEPI, C-E-P-I dot org. They raise money and then they support vaccine and antiviral development, the kind that companies won't touch. And then they bring it to a point where it's ready for the next outbreak and then it can be tested during the outbreak. So I think we're seeing a change in the model, uh, how we develop vaccines and antivirals. I think it's promising. And, you know, as we have more and more outbreaks, these these nonprofits do more and more and play a bigger role. So I'm hoping that that will make us ready for the next one. But I'm telling you, when that first uh, wave of infections happened in China, it could have been stopped there with the right vaccine and the right antiviral. And we have the technology, we have the know-how to have done that. And it's so sad that we didn't. We didn't use our abilities at all. But it's Obama's fault. Yep. <laughs> That was a, that was sarcasm. Just yes. <laughs> oh, by yes. the way, let me let me let me do that. Oh, so was Obama, it sars sarcasm? Sorry. Our bar, Obama. <laughs> so our, Obama put in place a pandemic team, right? Yeah. Which mm-hmm. would respond, and that was thrown away by Trump. He said it was a waste of money, but that's just an excuse. Um, he just wanted to save money and give it to other people. Mm-hmm. We could have had a pandemic response. We didn't have one. We still don't have one, in my opinion. Uh, we had a program called Predict, where people went out and collected viruses and wild animals to see what was out there and what they might do to people. He canceled that as well. So, you know, all this short-sighted stuff from mm-hmm. a party who thinks the government should have a minimal role, and that's not the right way to go. The government's role is to protect the health of the people in their country. That's it. And, you know, you have to do what you can in terms of research and preparedness to do that. And we simply have not done it. It's I don't really know why. I, I, I'm actually genuinely curious. And we don't have the answer here. So there's no answer to this. It's just a thought thing. But I don't know why so many people are willing to spend money to blow up strangers but not protect their own. It's just weird yeah. to me. So mm-hmm. Oh, I think about it all the time. We have a huge military budget, yeah. right? However, I would say a pathogen is just as much of a threat as a foreign army. Right? Uh, yeah, yeah. Yet we don't mm-hmm. spend anywhere near as much money on them. I don't get it. I agree with you completely. I mean, see, the, the, I have a lot of colleagues who think like me, but nobody listens to us. And right. you know, we have we have Tony Fauci, who's a great advocate for 
people's health. And he's been really essential here. And he says this all the time to Congress. He goes, hey, we need money for this. And they don't pay attention to him because they want to put their money elsewhere. You know, I think the ancient Greeks had the, the, the myth of Cassandra, you know, who could <laughs> see the future, but nobody would listen to her. And, mm-hmm. and that, that seems to be the, the curse of, of, of the scientifically based yeah. mind. Yeah, so. That's right. That's so, right. Vincent, do you think, well, I will spoken a little bit about this, but do you think we'll have learned our lesson from this or do you think we'll just continue to make mistakes? like this well as i said the the landscape seems to be changing a bit with organizations like sepi but they can only do so much so i don't have a lot of faith in humanity unfortunately you know the i've lived 67 years and i used to have a lot of faith and it went away as i got older so i don't think we're going to learn from this at all we're going to this will become a human virus it'll come back every season you know, it'll cause a certain amount of infections and death, and it won't be remembered, and there won't be enough money put into uh, this and similar viruses to make an impact. I, I, I fear that a lot of memaws and pawpaws will have to die before people's voting habits change. Yes. Um, yeah, and 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 that include, and I only say voting in the sense that it seems like that's the only way to get any kind of uh, government response mm-hmm. in America. I don't, I don't know. I, I, I this, this is heartbreaking to me. Um, and I, I really, really, really hope that a lot of the lethality numbers are wrong. But um, in the meantime, I'm, I'm glad to see something at all is happening. But I, I wish we had a more unified, effective communication system. I mean, like a lot of this stuff is mm-hmm. happening reactive. There's not enough proactive action happening to sort of stop things. And it, it, that's dumb. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, I guess we're going to wrap this up soon, but I just wanted to ask one more question. I was just reading last night about uh, school closures in the United States and how the last time that was enacted was uh, in the 1950s because of polio outbreaks. Mm. And I know my, my parents were affected by that in Australia back in the 1950s. And you've got a really interesting connection to polio, which is a strange thing to say. You don't say that very often. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, it's interesting. I've spent my whole career working on polio virus, actually, <laughs> starting in 1979. And, uh, you know, we don't do much more because it's almost eradicated. So we really can't do all that much. But it's really how I became a virologist and it has affected my thinking. And um, it's true. It used to be a huge source of panic in the U.S. every summer. There would be outbreaks of polio. And that's why, you know, it took 50 years, but we got two vaccines that work. But the virus was first found in 1908. And it wasn't until 1954 that we had the first vaccine. It took a long time. So hopefully these contemporary vaccines won't take that long. And they certainly shouldn't. We'll have one much quicker. But there's a lot of lessons from polio that people have forgotten. You know, we talked earlier about forgetting. Very few people read history. They forget the past. I mean, I I always say even science students, PhD students, they don't read anything over a year old. I think that's a big mistake. Out of date. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think think history and science definitely should be going on. on Well, and it only takes like one or two years with no monster for people to stop, you know, wearing their crosses and putting their garlic. I mean, just I mean, it doesn't take long (laughs) to get people to stop being afraid of something once you've kind of beaten it back. And and and. 
that's what the anti-vaxxers in this country, they, they really drive me crazy. I, I mean, I, they just, it, it, it breaks my heart that there's such a strident group of people, you know, basically spreading uh, their own kind of virus, a, a virus that rejects things that kill thousands to millions, depending on what the disease is. Just, just being afraid of vaccines in general. It's, it's just ridiculous. But they're all seeking a coronavirus vaccine. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. I, 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 it, you know, or they're drinking a silver solution they bought on a, a magic TV show. It's just ridiculous. Colloidal so. silver. Yeah. 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 All right. Well, so a couple little quick ones. Uh, are, has uh, this particular virus changed your own behavior and just studying this stuff changed your own behavior and worries outside of just washing your hands more? Oh, I'm not worried about it because I understand it. I think that's the source of Good point. fear for most people that they, they don't understand things. And, you know, I teach a, a virology course at Columbia every spring and I tell the students, you need to know this mainly so you won't be afraid at the next outbreak because you'll understand what's going on. And uh, I think it's quite ironic that this year the course has been converted to online only because of a virus because <laughs> our, our university yes. canceled classes last year. But I think knowledge... Great demonstration. <laughs> knowledge and understanding takes away the fear. And that's why I podcast. That's why I put my courses online. That's why I blog... I wrote a textbook. I, I want to spread information. Unfortunately, I can't reach that many people, right? I, would, I should be reaching like CNN, millions of people, but I don't. Yeah. Mm -hmm. and Again, that goes back to this being a, a very, you know, capitalist economy. And, and nonsense sells and is significantly easier to sell cereal with, apparently, than mm -hmm. good science. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I'm not, I don't want to make any money. I just want to teach people. Yeah, I don't. I don't monetize any video on YouTube, right? Just, I don't mm -hmm. want it to interfere with learning. I would give away everything. I give away almost everything. The only thing I don't is a textbook because I've written it with four other people. But I, I swear, if I wrote a textbook myself, I'd give it away because I really think everybody needs to know this. Um, and uh, my wife hates it because I don't make any money, but. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's more important to teach people. And down at heart, even though I've done research my whole life, I'm at heart a teacher, and I want mm -hmm. people to learn. Could you mention your shows again one more time? I'll put links in the show notes, but but I know some people just like to hear it, and then they'll go look it up themselves. Yeah, they'll check it out. So I have one website where all the shows are. It's called microbe.tv, and it's This Week in Virology, This Week in Microbiology, This Week in Parasitism, this week in evolution, this week in neuroscience and immune. And those are all at microbe.tv. I also write a blog every week about viruses. It's at virology.blog. And then I put my virology course videos up every year. So right now we're in the middle of the course. I'm still posting them because we're doing it online. You can find those at my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash P-R-O-F-V-R-R, profvrr. So in this episode, we've been talking about viruses, or one in particular, as monsters. Right. Uh, but we like to end our show by asking our guest, what's your favorite monster? So do you mean a monster or anything that could be a monster? Up to you. Yeah, we don't limit people. Yeah. It could be a virus. It could be a Bigfoot, anything. So my, my favorite virus is poliovirus, which <laughs> I've spent my whole life working on. But if... If, you, if I could name a real monster, I have to tell you, when I was a kid, 
I loved building mo- plastic models of real monsters from TV and movies, right? Yeah, I had about twenty. I had about twenty of them. I've never seen them since. You mean like the old Universal ones with the? Yes, yes. Oh, those were great kids. Yeah. So when I was a kid, my favorite monster was Creature from the Black Lagoon. Oh yeah. Which which most people will not even know what it is today, right? But well, they would they would know the shape of water, which is clearly inspired by, right? That's right. A little little bit sexier than the original, but yeah. I love polio as an answer, though. We have not had that one before. That's true. That's true. That's brand new. You know, you spend your life studying something. Mm-hmm. And I've really thought about it every day. We still do a little bit of work on it. You come to love it. And, you know, I love all viruses, but if I had to name one, it would be polio virus. And a lot of people think I'm morbid because it makes people <laughs> paralyzed, but. That's not why. Well, I, it, I mean, you, it's the thing you're passionate about. You you study mm-hmm. it. I, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I it, I mean, we didn't really dive super deep into it, but I, I I find it fascinating the whole process of developing vaccination around trying to find some portion of the virus that you can expose to a human that will give them an immunal response without actually infecting them. Yes. 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 You don't want to make people sick, right? Right. But you have to. Give them something that will protect you, them from infection. Yes, it's quite a balancing act. And, you know, in the old days when the polio vaccine was made, it was uh, it was a crude science for sure. But nowadays we're really sophisticated. There's so many different ways you can make a vaccine. Um, it's amazing. It is. I, I heard the uh, on NPR last week a um about the government's secret egg farms, that the government's bought up eggs, uh, chicken farms, so that they can, when necessary, activate it and use it for vaccination production. Which, mm-hmm. I, that, good, I'm glad. I'm glad to know that exists. Um, or at least it was comforting to hear it, whether it's true or not. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, I, thank you so much for your time. This is and, yeah, and this great this information. Fascinating. And thank you for all the work that you do in science. Yeah, my, it's been fun talking to you. I really... You guys are great. You ask great questions. You have a good, you have a really good uh, rapport and all that. And I enjoyed doing it. I hope people learn something. And people, we we said where people can go. And if you want to learn more, come. Uh, we 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 do this every week for virology, and we've been doing it for ten years. Yeah. And now now we're getting a lot of new people. I wish they I wish they had been here before because they would be yeah. better prepared. But we do yeah. this all the time, not just during outbreaks. <laughs> and a lot of people suddenly find themselves with two or three weeks of free time they didn't expect. So yeah, to listen to podcasts, backlogs. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Learn something. <laughs> Thank you, you so it. much for coming on the show. Short notice. This has been really interesting. I think this is this is the time to do this. You know, there's no point yeah. in delaying it, right? So, thanks well, for inviting yeah. me. You're going to be on uh, our friend uh, Maddie's show tomorrow, um, Atheist in Minnesota. That's right. Um, yeah, right. she she recommended you. So, okay, um, good. Have fun on that show, and yeah, thank you so much again for all this information. Okay, and stay safe. Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith, and I'm Karen Stolzner. You've been listening to an interview with Dr. Vincent Racaniello of Columbia University's Microbiology Department. A list of all his shows are in the show notes of this episode. I hope you'll spread the information you heard in this episode. And remember that the best and latest information on this pandemic are available at the World Health Organization and the Center for Disease Control's websites. Links to both of their pages on this virus 
are available at the top of this episode's show notes. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Monster Talk. Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk theme music is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. And as always, thank you for listening. Be well, stay safe. Monster House presentation. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.